Welcome to the Guildhall School Events podcast. I'm here with John Kenny, who is Professor of Trombone here at the Guildhall School. John is giving a lecture recital as part of the Faculty Artist Series on Monday the 16th of November. John, you've called your recital Mouthpiece of the Gods. Can you explain a bit about what that means and what your lecture recital will involve? Yes, sure. Well, that title came to me... um, Funnily enough, I was going to write a piece of that title at one point, um, but the the title instead actually was the trailer title for a series of television documentaries that never got made, (laughs) if that makes sense. Around the turn of the millennium, of course, there were a lot of bids for millennial television programmes. And um, as the programme for this particular recital shows, I'm involved in quite a lot of areas outside of, of simply recital or concertizing as a trombone player. One particular area that, that it has interested me greatly for years and in which I work a great deal is that of uh, musical archaeology. And obviously that also relates to anthropology um, and indeed to semiotics. And I was approached by a team of filmmakers and asked if I would make a series of documentaries about the development of the instrument we call the brass instruments in our culture. And that was something that interested me very greatly. As I say, the the programme never actually ran, (laughs) but I did a great deal of research for it. Um, and part of that research was was to do with my own uh, playing and, and assembling instruments and skills in certain areas. And of course it also involved going out to hear, to meet, to listen to many players of different instruments in different parts of the world. And that, that was fascinating. And um, subsequently I started to do um, a lecture recital that I called The Masterpiece of the Gods. And the reason for the title itself is that there is, in fact, a common thread that runs through all of these, shall we call them, lip-read instruments, that is, the instruments that are activated by vibrating the lips in every culture that has developed them from the dawn of time right up to the present day. And that is that once you get behind our art music or jazz or commercial music or whatever, they tend to be sacral instruments. They're instruments which are used in... Uh, ancient cultures and also in non-metropolitan cultures as adjuncts to mystic rites, sacred rites. Because they have many of the qualities uh, of the human voice in song. Now, of course, every instrument, every instrument that we play imitates the human voice to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, And all teachers tell their students to sing their lines. This is a truism that we have in our culture, and indeed in every culture. But with the brass instruments in particular, there's another layer. Through our own contemporary physical analysis, acoustical analysis, we know that, for instance, the trombone, the instrument I play, is remarkably similar in its physical characteristics to the sound produced by the male human voice when it's very, very clearly produced. But Beyond that, there are also analogies in the methods of actually producing the notes, which have everything to do with speech, not song, okay. but actually are connected to our speech functions and the colours of language. And from the dawn of time, that particular facet of instruments played in that way um, has been used in rite, in ritual, 
So you find everything from the, the trumpets or the horns of Jericho to the use of shells in Polynesia and Micronesia um, to the use of giant horns in, um, in Mesoamerica, the Alphorn, which is the biggest of the European great horns, um, the trumpet, the trombone, right through our history as a family of instruments, there is this particular, um, this particular connection with the instruments. They are effectively a super voice. Okay. They're bigger than the voice. They're both greater and lesser than the voice. And this characteristic has made them literally the mouthpiece of the gods. <laughs> I see. And so you're playing some quite unusual instruments as a result. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So what first made you want to explore lip reads? Was it because you were already a trombone player or did you begin to play the trombone because you were aware of history surrounding oh, it? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was... I started life as absolutely a straight-ahead trombone player, and I'm still a straight-ahead trombone player. You know, the, all, the, all the normal things you, you do with a trombone, I do with a trombone. Yeah. Uh, but at an early stage of my career, I found that the um, the work that I was the work that I was doing was not enough to satisfy me either intellectually or emotionally. I, I wanted other things to do more, things that interested me more, and that also involved me more personally. And um, I've always been a, a, a very restless sort of person, restless physically and restless mentally. And so I naturally drifted in the direction, well, so rather than drifting, I probably swam in the direction of both dance and theatre and, and have subsequently worked hugely you know, with the other performing arts. Um, I come from a family of painters, visual artists, and so I've always been inspired by visual arts and sculpture, plastic arts... Um, laterally, I've worked a great deal with animation and film. Okay. Um, I do also work as a as an actor myself, and and in fact, um, a theatre company that I co-founded over well over twenty five years ago is, uh, continues to work somewhere in the world every day of the year. So that's, wow, um, that's a nice <laughs> nice sort of thing. And um, this uh, fascination with um, mu- ancient instruments and music, uh, music and instruments of other ethnicities was just a natural part of my own um, inclination to try to find influences to enrich my trombone playing. But the flow is two ways. On the one hand, um, what I discovered in other music of other periods and other places enriched the instrument that is my primary skill. At the same time, because I have that primary skill, I'm able to engage with those instruments in a very particular way. And so... Also, that, that has enabled me to get into situations which I couldn't have got into just as a trombone player. Yes. You know, I get into holes in the ground and look at things being dug up. <laughs> um, people invite me to archaeological conferences. It's, it's quite you know, it's one of those lovely clang moments. I remember I was in the, um, uh, the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art and I particularly wanted to see an exhibit that I expected to be there in the Ancient People's Gallery, and it wasn't there. And, um, and I just wrote on a card my name and the fact that I was a, a member of the Scottish Society of Antiquaries and that I was part of the Carnix research team. And all of a sudden, the arts director of the New York Metropolitan Museum appeared before me and gave me a private tour. It was one of those marvellous 
little sort of one-upmanship moment. <laughs> but you see, that wouldn't have happened as a trombone player. No, absolutely. <laughs> They're absolutely wonderful situations absolutely. to get into. And do you feel, you mentioned that you do music theatre and I know that you do composition mm. and all of these different activities. Do you think... Um, they bring something extra to your teaching, or is it difficult to balance them with being a teacher as well? No, I, I, I think that, um, in fact, my role here at the Guildhall is is very interesting. It's far more than teaching the trombone. I love teaching the trombone, and um, you know, continually there are every every student is different. Um, the nice thing about the trombone department here is that we have. Uh, we, we do have a very fine trombone department at the Guildhall, and my colleagues are all um, highly respected players in their own fields. Um, and I'm, um, if you like, I'm the, one of the eccentrics in the team. Actually, we're all eccentric to a certain extent, I suppose. Um, but we all have something very different to offer. But my own remit goes well beyond that. Of course, I work with the interpretation of contemporary music um, right through the wind, brass and percussion department. Yeah. And uh, as anybody who works intensely with contemporary Western music knows, since the last war, music has tended to become, concert music, that is, solistic music, has tended to require skills from outside the field of pure uh, musical performance. Yes. The influences are eclectic. They come from many different areas. And uh, so, in a sense, I'm just a child of my time. I, I'm, I'm, I am moulded by the fact that in order to do the things I do, I have had to garner skills from many quarters, and it's been my pleasure to do so. I've ended up working with absolutely fascinating people. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it certainly brings something to your teaching. Um, so, teaching contemporary music to students across the department, um, are there particular composers or performers of that important contemporary repertoire that you think our students should be studying? Well, funnily enough, we, I've just spent um, the day today with a third year group, or all the third year windbrass and percussion department, in a way discussing that very question. Um, each person in second, third and fourth year I, I've asked to start developing personal profiles for me based upon their knowledge both of the repertoire that exists for their instrument at this stage in their development, wherever that is, and their knowledge of the players performing on those instruments, the relationships between composers and leading players. There are lighthouse composers and there are lighthouse players. Yes. And literally they stand out on the waves, the yes. general sea. And one has to look at the development of repertoire in several different ways. As individual instrumentalists, there are pieces which are important to us within the small specialist area of our instrument. There are increasingly very fine instrumentalist performer composers. Here at the Guildhall, we have a number of leading composer performers or performer composers. Um, and these people are very, very important for the acquisition of technique, style, uh, performance knowledge. Uh, I suppose I'm one of those people myself. Uh, another one would be Ian Clark. Yes. Very, very much so. Um, just immediate Richard Bissell. Um, there is, the, however, the, then another question, and it has to be answered very honestly, the question of composer stature based upon personal taste 
and based upon um, critical international uh, assessment of the worth of the music. Now sometimes that can't be justly made until people are dead and gone, or very old. But there are certainly composers who stand out as being major, uh, once again I use that word, lighthouses, yeah. major um, creative spirits. They are not necessarily the composers who are most important for our individual instruments. I see. Um, many trombone players play my music, but I am a minor composer. I have to say that. I'm a minor composer. Um, Harrison Birtwistle is a major composer. Yeah. There's no doubt that that is a just comparison. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so, yes, absolutely. For people working in Western musical culture, and by that I mean all of Europe, uh, America, North and South, and those parts of Asia which are aspiring to our culture for whatever reasons... Um, yes, there are, since the last war, uh, certain desperately important uh, composers whose music we need to know in order to be literate, in the same sense, in order to speak and understand our language properly, we actually need to be literate, we need to have read, we really need to have read certain authors. This is something that's talked about on the radio a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of despair, even in English departments about people not reading. I meet English students who haven't read Chaucer. I meet English students who haven't read all of Dickens, who haven't read Henry James. Let's say Herman Melville, the most important author that nobody has read in the English language. Moby Dick, the most important novel that most people haven't read. Yeah. It's the sort of thing. Yeah. The, the same is true of, of music. We all know the names Stockhausen, Zanarkis, Berio, Penderecki, Lutoslavsky, Boulez. But when one asks with uh, students to respond with absolute honesty, do you know any of these people's music? And bear in mind, we're, we are sitting in one of the finest conservatoires in Britain, therefore one of the finest conservatoires in Europe. And the honest answer, even at fourth year, is generally virtually nothing. Really? Yes. And are they keen to explore those composers once you start speaking about them? Well, I've always found, and this has been remarkably encouraging over the last ten years, that when engaging with students in this way, asking leading questions about self-knowledge, the response is absolutely not what the people who run courses and who construct content programmes fear. Absolutely not overwhelmingly people are desperate to know they're open and enthusiastic and find the discovery of music um, a bowling over it's wonderful, I mean it's a wonderful thing to see yeah. I mean always continually encouraged by the intelligence and enthusiasm of students here and I'm sure it would be the same if I was doing the same thing at you know, many other institutions I, whereas there's a lot of doom and gloom about the younger generation, I don't share any of that at all. I mean, it, all, all you have to do is, is work for three hours with a group of students here and you go out thinking, yep, the world's going to be okay. And do you think it's the case that they just don't know where to start then? They just need to be pointed in the direction of... It's partly that. It would be almost arrogant of somebody like me to suggest that 
that it needs a somebody like me to start them. I think there's another factor, and that is that they're so damned busy. Yeah. It's hard to see the wood for the trees in a place like this. And indeed, in our ordinary professional life as musicians, we are so busy. We are desperately uh, pressed for time, always. We're under stress to be good enough, to learn, not to let the side down, to be in the right place at the right time. Music students work harder than almost any other class of students that I know, and I'm very aware of people in the other um, humanities, but I've also observed people in sciences, and I would say that the only other students that I witness working to the same pitch of continual involvement with their studies are those who are involved in clinical medicine. Students involved in clinical medicine know what it is to really work, yeah. so do musicians. <laughs> and actually, it's a really hard thing to study, yeah. especially when you consider that most of us aren't going to make very much money. Well, you studied <laughs> at a conservatoire yourself, didn't yes. you? Yeah. So do you have advice that you would give to a wind or brass player as they graduate from here? Is there um, a good way to start your get your career off to a good start when you finish it? Well... In some ways, the the musical profession, as it was thought to exist when I was a student, has almost ceased to exist. Um, it has contracted in its conventional sense remarkably. And for people of my own generation, I'm 52, a lot of people get terribly gloom about that, sit around in the corners of pubs and, and it's all gloom and doom and despair. But actually, you know, I always point out to people, there is more music of more types being played by more people and listened to by more people than ever before in the history of humanity. There is the most incredible amount of music being performed and consumed, as it were, listened to, appreciated. It's a very important thing in people's lives all over the world, 24 hours a day. However, the model of professional music making that we're still trained for, I believe, is questionable, in many cases redundant, Many people who graduate from the Guildhall School of Music and Drama will not work in the professional context that they think they're going to work at or that they're being taught to look at. It's one of the things that I try gently but firmly to say to people. My advice is to have your eyes and ears open, to look. The most important thing, apart from being damn good at what you actually do with your instrument or voice, or both, um, is to be able to interact with other people. It's the contacts and interactions that you make and being open to accepting possibilities when they, when they knock on the door, when, when they come to you, go into them. That implies having enough versatility to be able to accept those possibilities. But if you can, I mean, the possibilities are endless, huge. Also, I think that people today need to be much more entrepreneurial than they were in my generation, yes. uh, my generation, people could seriously come out of college and then wait, go to the right pub, tell the right jokes, drink with the right people and expect to be employed. Well, you can't do that now. You actually have to make your own work. But the great thing is that I know lots of people that I've been involved with, with teaching here who've gone out and made work, not got work, but made work, not only for themselves but for lots of other people. They have generated activity in a huge variety of, of, of fields of, of performance, uh, often right outside of music. And that's the way forward, because since we live in quite clearly a post, 
industrial society here in our part of Britain, and since our society is going, undergoing another massive change right here in the City of London where we are, we're at the centre of the collapse of something that's been going on for 25 years, and it is collapsing, and no matter how much money is pumped into it, it's a phony economy. It cannot continue. The model is fatally flawed. We actually have to find new ways in our society as a whole of producing, wealth-creating, life-enhancing activity. And that, that's a huge challenge. It's yeah. a huge challenge for the people that are here as teenagers now. And it will, what they do is going to dictate what happens to me when I'm too old to do anything. Uh, it's, it's, this, is a, this is big stuff, yeah. but actually the answer to your question is a very big answer. Uh, what we do in our little corner of, of life as musicians is part of the solution to the bigger problem. It's how we respond to the challenges of life, which we can't sit around waiting for some organisation to employ us. We have to make things that people want. And you're a fine example of that, I think. And certainly, <laughs> certainly in terms of expressing yourself through different art forms and offering uh, different kinds of uh, performance. So, so the thing is, it, it, you know, it makes me sound as if I'm you know, terribly idealistic and, and holier than now and so on. And I, yes, I am idealistic. But there's another thing. At root, my whole life has been spent trying to do things that are fun in places that I like and be paid for it, actually. <laughs> I think that's the idea that probably most of our students have. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, John, and uh, we look forward to your lecture recital um, on the 16th of November. Thank Thanks you. very much.